Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. It's funny, like, you press the record button, and even though we're just testing them, we're like, oh, now we have to have a recorded conversation. <laughs> <laughs> this will be on the podcast. Yeah. Okay. It'll be a bonus episode that everyone's going to really care about. <laughs> really. Yeah. Um, so what, did, what did we do for, like, how, yeah. how what, what we did on our holidays. Yeah. Um, um, this is so strange. It's so funny, like, recording. I mean, obviously, we've done it once before, but it's, it's, uh, yeah. That is funny that this time we're both in Melbourne when neither of us live in Melbourne anymore. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and you've recently been in Sydney when I wasn't there, and yeah. I've recently been in Canberra when, when you weren't there. there. And we've timed this very well. It's the 29th of August, 2017. I'm Benjamin Riley. And I'm Simon Copland. Welcome to Queers. This episode is going to be something a little bit different. Simon and I are joined by writer and troublemaker, Helen Razor. Hi, Helen. Good evening, slash morning, slash afternoon. Well, yeah, I guess we have no idea when, when people are going to be listening to this. Hopefully, you know, at home in an intimate space. With a glass couple of, of candles on. Perhaps you know. aggressively jogging down a scenic track. <laughs> Being absolutely spurred on by our words of revolution that I can promise you will follow. So running straight from that track into a, uh, I don't know, we rarely kind of incite people to very specific actions. So. <laughs> so Helen, how did you how did you find out about the podcast? The first time you both came to my attention was a rather wonderful um, piece that you wrote in the publication Overland, um, which occasionally does have wonderful pieces. Um, yeah, it certainly does. M- most often, though, I'd say have pieces desperately trying to redefine the left as something that has nothing to do with the mode of production whatsoever. <laughs> um, but there are still really great pieces, um, and your your piece was really good. And I thought, um, considering your relative youth, um, that you made some asides about you, you know you didn't relegate the idea of identity politics or intersectionality to irrelevance, but you questioned its efficacy uh, and I mean to say that you know identity politics um, or its very close cousin intersectionality is 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 meaningless is itself meaningless I mean of course people yeah. have identities and 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 of course those identities produce social meaning but the fact that you challenge that in a publication which has largely embraced the idea I thought was quite good. So that's how I heard not so much about the podcast, but the extraordinary young identities (laughs) that are Simon 
and his lovable sidekick, Ben. I'm, I'm absolutely the sidekick in this relationship. Thing. <laughs> uh, that is true. I th- that, was, I... that was completely arbitrary. <laughs> um, speaking of... You're clearly uh, the top in this working relationship. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm probably like twice Simon's size. It's so true, that's, it's uh, true. You know, I forgot how tall you were until we saw each other again. Look, enough with the relentless media habit about (laughs) talking about ourselves as though we're fascinating. (laughs) We are not. We are mere vessels for ideas. But yeah, let's talk about some things of substance, shall we? Yeah, let's. I mean, I think it's good that you, we, you know, we started talking about identity politics just a second ago. I mean, I think, I mean, like us in many ways, you have a bit of a reputation for being sort of a contrarian when it comes to queer politics. But I'm not Um, a contrarian. I mean, I'm like, like yourself, I have what I consider a consistent position. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's informed, um, you know, just entrepreneur, a little bit secret, quite a lot by Marxism, um, but also queer politics. So I'm not inconsistent with, um, queer theory. Yes, yeah, so I guess maybe informed I'm by queer thinking theory. about contrarian in, in terms of such of the mainstream discourse of critic. Let's say critic, critic, critical. Yeah, yeah. Better. No, it's just it's just a word that I think is incorrectly yeah, no, used. I mean, yep. I have um, you know I have a particular view. Um, and there, are, I mean, of course, the view changes the more one reads and sure. y- y- the more one ages and, you know, the more sort of like the idea of praxis starts to interfere with your theory. Sure. But um, in, in no way am I contrary. I'm actually okay. fairly predictable. Okay. Yeah. That's the other thing. I mean, I think that's totally fair. Um, so maybe, maybe what, what, you know, to get into the substance, let's go into what is your, you know, your consistent perspective and, 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 and particularly, I guess, thinking about the sort of, you know, where queer politics is at and a sort of practical level in Australia today where I think we all have probably significant disagreements with the the way it operates, you know, what 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 is what is the, the you know, the sort of critical position you take on, on a lot of the things that are occurring today in queer politics? Well I would say that it's and this can occur with identity politics as as well. It's actually a disavowal of the notion of politics itself. Um, it's Kind of more, I mean, although a lot of people um, within so-called queer politics would um, consider themselves to be very progressive, um, it is, in my view, informed by a really sort of like quite old-fashioned, by which I mean centuries-old Western Enlightenment version of what um, truth and honour is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, what's the most ethical thing to do? And, you know, these conversations um, and these writers like, you know, Immanuel Kant or whatever... Um, took place in the salons of Europe um, among the elite. Some great philosophy developed out of that time. But, I mean, it is, you know, you do go back and you sort of consider things like Kant and it's like, you know, the categorical imperative. It's like, um, um, you know, you should proceed um, uh, from goodwill, which is part of the categorical imperative. You know, this is my ethics. As long as I, the individual, proceed from a place of goodwill, um, and understanding and, you know, follow the golden rule, do unto others, um, then I will achieve political action. But if, if, you know, a couple of things happen um, or a couple of things have happened. One is that these were conversations. These conversations are very Western um, and, you know, they have a, a long tradition and they occur in in small places where, you know, they're talking about men of goodwill, but it was just a handful of men of goodwill. And they would you, implicitly there's the assumption, you know, they were the people that were going to govern and inform mm, the, 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 yeah. the, the rest of society. And I think that that's 
um, something that we can see in in queer politics. The most um, sort of uh, a public recent example of this was this um, uh, youngish journalist called Shannon Malloy, a mm. journalist of you, you know I think little note until such time as he um, began to describe um, the bullying that he, um, a person who identifies as a gay man, had encountered at school, as, you know, most people um, who have a non-normative sexuality do, and it was a defensive safe school. So it was something that was just, you know, embraced um, quite quickly by, um, you know, uh, gays and their allies because, I mean, don't don't the allies just... Look, crave a gay pet at the moment. Oh. <laughs> no, no more lucrative oh. status to attain than being a capital A ally. Uh, yeah, I was in Mel- in the city here in Melbourne um, on Saturday, after, just after the rally that had occurred, and I saw lots of people walking around with stickers that said ally. And I just cringed. cringed <laughs> know, yeah. I cringed at every, every moment I saw you it. might as well say straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was... Um, uh, he should remain nameless, but I was speaking to um, an, you know who I mean, an eminent older scholar. <laughs> I was talking to him and he was talking about doing a recent round of interviews for one of his many books. The interviewers were very careful always to say, I support you, but I'm not gay. And I, I sort of feel the same with, with, with Ally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's like, seriously, you're telling me all of your sexual practice is normative? Like you've never had a, st- a finger stuck up your bum, <laughs> you know. It's it's like ally. You know, just don't mistake me for one of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, got I mean, be, I've got to be apart from I'm over here, apart, and we have to be separate. But I have to, you know, and I'm just supporting you, but I'm separate. Of course, it's not all their fault because mm. um, for a long time, um, in um, you know, sort of more orthodox gay politics, you know, you really had to set forth your credentials. And um, I'm old enough to remember when, I mean, let's be frank, there's still a lot of transphobia in large gay communities. Of course, absolutely. And it's just that through certain admirable efforts of, um, you know, a small number of people that it's no longer acceptable to say those things out out loud. But there's been a lot of people, you know, relegated to to silence and chucked out of the queer community. Um, By the same token, I found that the queer community was a lot more tolerant um, in the 90s. And, you know, it's it's just interesting, the idea, the way that people think of of Stonewall. I mean, these were people not necessarily with identities. Yeah, sure. I mean, there was, and now they're being described as, Trans or not really being asked totally, what, I, if they're still alive. I listened to an interview recently what? with a, a, someone who is now considered, and I, I think by the end of her life, called herself a, a trans woman who was there mm. at Stonewall. And the uh, this was an interview recorded in like the eighties, and the interviewer introduced her by saying that she will use some language that makes it sound like she's a drag queen, mm. um, but you know that's a, a function of how it was talked about at the at the time but it, th- what was interesting to me was the fact that it was deemed necessary to like you know almost like have this caveat at the start yeah. of the of the episode i find that quite interesting about drag queens i mean there's still a lot of older gay men in particular who are happy to identify as as drag queens and yes, they're, they're yeah. gay men like they identify as gay men but they um are you know drag queens mm, mm. that's what they do and that's that's no longer acceptable in the you know 
the BLT sandwich, you know, is um, really um, interesting to me. But um, so, yes, yeah, so I found just sort of like back to the idea of these old Enlightenment politics yeah, about yeah. how we the good, we the elite um, can decide for you, the, the you know, the rest of the population, what that is, you know, implicit in a lot of this this thinking or you know really visible on a show like the west wing have you ever seen the west wing yes absolutely and it's you get these kind of like great progressives like like marching down halls being really really excellent at what they do and the so-called um liberal left are like mad for these people like you know they're great and they have rational arguments and if we only elevate the excellent um, and if only we have role models, then then everything will will be okay. And you can understand how, in uh, you know, a time where people were still virtually enslaved and there was you know no suffrage for many people, mm. um, that this could function. You know, a group of elite men say, "Well, we've decided this is the way to be moral," and then everybody else has to take it on. But we are purportedly living in more democratic times, although of course we're not. And so, you know, the question um, becomes, does this sort of 18th century morality really fit with a mass society? You know, I mean, you can't just say that, you know, things that appear to be moral in our everyday conversations are things that can then transform the world. You know, I think, I can't remember, but was it Marcusa who came up with this Great analogy, you know, the Frankfurt School and they, you guys like the Frankfurt School, yeah. right? Um, um, Simon's better on theorists. Than, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, they're largely blamed for, uh, but I think wrongly, for the movement toward identity politics. I think neoliberalism is largely responsible for identity politics, but there you go. So I think yeah, it's Mark- I agree with that too, but let's... <laughs> I, I think that Marcusa, um, it could have been him, I don't know. I'm not great on theorists either. I have terrible memory. So he uses this example of the traffic jam, right, to explain the difference between individual action and individual morality and then, um, you know, mass consciousness, which are two very different things, or like mass political consciousness. So you go home at 5 p.m. And actually that's the sensible thing for you to do. You don't want your boss to extract any more profit out of your body. You should go home at 5 p.m., And you go home at 5 p.m. and, you know, like most people, you're a safe and sensible driver and you're observing the road rules. But, you know, what what happens? The mass then takes on its own character and there there will be accidents. And so there seems to be like not just in queer politics but in contemporary liberal feminism and a range of other so-called progressive movements, this inability to see beyond the individual and individual Mm -hmm. greatness. It's like if we just just one voice, just one heart-rending YouTube, just one Guardian editorial that says we will not conscience any arguments against the sanctity of uh, same-sex marriage, which I think is a fucked up thing to do um that you know if only we as individuals all you know proclaim this thing then nothing will will change and then you know everybody believes it all well, not everybody but a large numbers of people believe that it all starts with me mm-hmm. now i'm not just talking so you know where i'm coming from from a theoretical standpoint here and i'm very aware in saying this that i'm a sort of a white tertiary educated woman which i think are reasonable you know identity politics notwithstanding are very reasonable admissions to make when one is speaking 
this is one of the good things that, you know, um, constructivism and, 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 and identity politics gave us. You know, we are all informed by our identities. So I know that it's a privilege um, of having a privileged identity to ignore um, identity. So sure. I'm just sort of making yeah, making that... Um, that that caveat and um, you know for example um, a, a, a friend of mine who's an Aboriginal scholar says said to, uh, at dinner the other night sometimes I get sick of speaking as an Aboriginal person because sure. there are so few contexts in which he gets to speak as as anything else and you know that's such an interesting point yeah, yeah. and whites get to enjoy a fluidity of conversation you know move across mm. um, borders more easily and conversational borders more easily pretending like Chris Kenny does that identity doesn't really exist simply because we don't feel it so you know Identity exists, identity exists, identity mm. exists. I, mean, I was, I was going to ask you, but, you sort of talk, like, obviously, uh, the ideas that you're talking about in this this kind of um, focus on the individual has has its kind of roots in, in some very old ideas. But I almost got the sense uh, when you were talking about the 90s, for example, that, that I mean, is this is this new in terms of, like, the last few decades of queer politics? And if so, do you have any idea on, on kind of why it's become this focus has become so extreme well I think I mean years. you can't um, sort of separate uh, and increasingly you can't separate queer culture from the mainstream culture yes in the 90s um, uh, when I was you know coming into adulthood um, there was actually a distinct cultural separation which is both good and bad um, and the community that I lived in in Sydney um, was one where you could um, live and you know this wasn't for the sake of living in an echo chamber it was just out of safety where you could live in a queer community um, and you got all sorts of interesting ways of living and, and networks of care that happened and you know we know that this happened right around the western world and was his name Martin Martin Delaney the great yep. guy who you know that dreadful film the Dallas Buyers Club basically <laughs> ripped off his life story i mean he was a guy that used the queer community um and and queer doctors to accelerate um uh, a way to live with hiv yeah like, i mean hiv is a great example of queer communities coming together it's, to, i mean to it's find an extraordinary <laughs> history changing yeah. example yeah absolutely of activism it's okay well we're going to have lay researchers and we're going to have these informal you know medical um tests and what have you and that genuinely accelerated by years and saved goodness knows how many lives um the the antiviral combination therapy which i think was available in 1996 and so you know these things went on in in secret and of course yes you know we're a mass society and people shouldn't be ghettoized and stuff like that but that kind of ghettoization um enabled um some kind of separate thought and the fact that people were dying Yes. Um, yeah. Made it very. People were dying, you know, and it's you know be, before your eyes, and it was a, it was a death sentence. So, um, so that changed things a lot. And I mean, you know, and then you have this fundamentalist soundtrack, um, and everyday people who really believed that this was, you know, some kind. Even if they weren't Christian, that this was some kind of punishment for the dirty, dirty acts. Mm. Uh, and so that really, I guess, made the queer community much more insular much more inclined to find different arrangements and you had things like i mean i don't know if they still exist they probably do in some form or another um you know like um drag houses 
you know, with, um, you know, you had a, a drag mother. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the New York, yeah. the New York ball culture, which yes. is, yes. Yeah, which yeah. is, which mm. is really, I think it still exists in, in big cities like New York. Mm. Um, I think that's definitely true. Uh, that that cliched you create your own family kind of thing but it's a real it was real yeah it is real yeah i sort of use the word cliche because yeah. it's, it's what rupaul says and in, in drag race a lot but i don't think it's i think it's cliched in that context but yeah. in, in in those circumstances i, mean, I quite like that the, show it's yeah fun. me too yeah we've talked about it on the, on the uh, but you know that that's sort of actually creating you know the, the you know when you're forced when you don't have your own family necessarily your own biological no, I mean, family in, yeah you do create your own families mm. and, and and create your own culture and your own um you know communities and all of that sort of stuff and, and the drag ball scene is a perfect yeah. example and there were really you know they, they may have been informal but they were absolutely solid networks of care i'm not saying mm. that it was a utopia and i'm not saying that it was probably a lot i mean my memory is that there were a lot more gay bashings than there are today in Sydney. I mean, that may or may not be true. I sure, don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, um, so you know, at the same time, you you, you know, you may maybe have one police liaison officer um, instead of all police officers sort of trained, um, which you know was also like very useful for um, people in. I remember when the first um, gay liaison officer was was appointed at the Darlinghurst Police Station. And a lot of what that person had to do was actually, you know, intervene in, you know, gay family violence, mm. which, of course, mm. goes on. Why wouldn't it? We're not fucking perfect, are we? <laughs> um, but so, you, you know, you have this hostile environment around you, but within that environment, and again, I'm not saying things were better in my day. They, they certainly weren't in many respects. But so what has occurred now is that that has there's no honouring of that time and there's no instruction being taken from that time. And, you know, even an organisation that was great and I'm sure is still great, um, like ACON, you know, I mean, you look at the awards that ACON um, give out. Famously to Karl Stefanovic last year. But also, I mean, Karl Stefanovic is like the least of it. Look at the number of people in the fucking finance sector Mm, that we choose to praise for their diversity and inclusion. Can there be a less inclusive industry? And I'm not just talking in terms of the people that are employed, but but can there be an industry more damaging um, not uh, to, to queer community itself than the finance sector? Poverty is a huge issue. Homelessness is a huge issue amongst queers. Mm-hmm. Who are, are the barely concerns? I think now in. In, certainly in like mainstream queer discourse but i mean it's, it's, yeah they're not concerns at all i mean who who sets the prizes for for, for housing it's it's banks yes, and yeah. shadow banks and this in, in australia in particular this is a massive problem it's a major issue yeah. and i mean queer people were vulnerable from the outset to homelessness i mean i experienced it as a teenager myself you know there's nowhere to go there's no affordable housing and especially in, you know, where the queer community, Australia's biggest queer community was centred, which was in, in a, and still is, I guess, in inner city Sydney. Now it's just a dream of equity. Absolutely, yeah. Or it's people who aspire to, you know, equity. And these things, are, I think, in my view, can't be divorced. Like, just as earlier I said, well, you know, I'm a white, cis, tertiary educated woman and this is something that I must disclose you know because i'm aware that there's um things that i will leave out of my story it is not objective etc etc 
your fucking equity is part of your story, you know? I mean, the amount of property that you own is part of your story. And this is the thing mm. that we don't look at. It's it's capital and how much of it you have mm, and, and what your vested interests is are. And, and this thing, capital, that influences and coerces the lives of every person on the planet is the thing that we choose to ignore, which is my major problem with identity politics slash queer politics. It's like a capital, oh, well, it's just another thing. No, it's not just another thing. It's a totalizing thing. And if you don't have sandwiches to eat and if you don't have anywhere to live, you'll certainly feel it. Um, and, you know, in one sense, I'm quite happy for my relative poverty because at least it sort of reminded me because you don't make a lot of money being a Marxist um, news analyst. And especially you don't make a lot of money if you've been writing kind of like antagonistically for 10 years about marriage equality you know i mean i've been called a homophobe by so many people mm-hmm. and um you know it's i mean i don't feel sorry yeah, for me or whatever yeah, i don't sure. give a shit i'm not going to write a book about all of the hate mail that i've received unlike <laughs> many other people i must be right because people are saying violent things toward me you know no i'm not right because people say violent things toward me i'm right because i'm fucking right <laughs> i mean given the like Given that we're talking, I mean, you're talking now about problems that are like so massive in scale and, and really obviously go far, far, far beyond queer communities. Like, what would like radicalizing, I'm not even radicalizing, but just like getting the queer community interested in these things look like? I mean, what would harnessing kind of queerness or, or the, the way that we kind of name ourselves as a community or the way that we name ourselves as being a, a special kind of interest group with special political needs to engage them in? in um, well, it might, the kind of problems you were talking about look like. It might help if, you know, those needs other than marriage equality were enumerated. And it might help if you didn't see people, people of, you know, allegedly good repute writing for storied newspapers about how uh, marriage equality will end suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I, I, sure. I mean, that's... A, how do you know? And I mean, I was. There's just no evidence to that at all. I mean, it's really post hoc reasoning. It's like the the idea is that people who are married tend to live longer. Ergo, this will automatically translate to that. And I mean, there's even been people who've said that um, suicide rates amongst LGBTQIA people have receded in the US since the passage of, um, by the SCOTUS. I mean, seriously. And at what point did you actually start declaring somebody's sexuality on, um, as a, as a coroner on the death certificate? Mm. Now that doesn't happen. And if, and you know what, there are people within psychiatry, there are a lot of really incredibly enlightened people within psychiatry. Um, you know, a lot of really great people. Mental health is another big thing for me. You know, well, for but, Sunday night as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but not just, you know, my own obviously failing mental health, but the, the mental health of, of, of nations, you know, the mental health of people um, and how they can, you know, seek assistance for it. But I yes. was speaking with a psychiatrist who was, you know, I wanted to examine this idea about suicidality and actual suicide uh, in LGBTIQA people, I, th- I think I made the crack. It's like, well, it's not like, you know, it's recorded on the death certificate. And she said, yes, but I think it should be. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. 
catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. And I thought, a declaration of your sexuality on a... I mean, even, even uh, I think, you know, this is just a theory, but I would assume that a large number of people who, who, are, who are queer in some form who commit suicide... Might might even might not even be at the stage of being out, let alone, you know, be able to, you know, because that would be the kind of times, you know, for young people who but, don't feel comfortable coming out, who couldn't even declare that. But I'm sure there's a lot of people like me who are not even kind of like out in a yeah, classic yeah, sense. Absolutely. It's like I don't know. I just just do things. I, I do stuff that yeah. you know. Sometimes it feels good, and sometimes it doesn't. Hopefully, but, I mean, more of the time it does. That's, but, that's one of the things we've spoken about. You know, I think. The, the sort of the essentialism of the there is this one identity that you have and that you just that you can be aligned to it so to the point where it could be on a death certificate yeah where it's just like well, I think you know, suicidality itself becomes another another sort of vector for essentializing yeah. queer people or you know okay. the other interesting thing is that i i find so you know yes many tests have found that People who, um, and, you know, Archers, the Australian Centre for Sexuality and Health Research yes. at La Trobe have done, you know, a lot of extensive work on, on this. And it's actually interesting if you, you dig down into the data, like um, the difference between um, the likelihood that a um, gay man will have suicidal thoughts and um, a, a trans person yes, yeah. um, is actually quite vast yes yeah, yeah. um mm. it's um you know gay men are less inclined than trans people and you know and that sort of stuff is not um really discussed and you know it can quite often be people who have identities that are less culturally acceptable and less culturally acceptable within the lgbtiqa community yeah yeah because um, if, if you're going back to that thing about seeking your own family if you try to go and seek a family in the queer community and then you get rejected from there, I can imagine, you know, that's the kind of thing that would push you even further mm. on along that path yeah. of, 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 of rejection. But, I mean, one of the things that I find weird, right, like this bloody same-sex marriage thing. I mean, of course I'll vote yes if, you know, the magpies aren't swipe, swooping near the mailbox. But <laughs> the thing that um, uh, strikes me as quite odd, we actually have something um, in in terms of, you know, national consensus that is i'm sorry it's this is not what about or this is a much more important thing for australian law and the national psyche which is coming to terms with you know the foundation myth the racist foundation yeah. myth of australia um and you know Aboriginal people, despite what you read in the press, do not all agree with Neil, Noel Pearson. And we've seen recently that Aboriginal people want want treaty mm. and uh, were happy to forego the 50th anniversary of the 1967 referendum um, to talk about what they wanted and you know, not to make the same mistakes that they felt had been made in 1967, which was, you know, still the result of, like, great bravery by people like Faith Bandler and whatever, whatever. So this is a much more pressing issue and it's something that receives relatively little press. It's something that people like to say, oh, well, you know, just recognise. And here, you know, Stan Grant says recognise and Noel Pearson 
although I think we've chucked Noel Pearson out of the respectable basket temporarily since he dared to say the truth about the ABC, which that it was shit in (laughs) terms of its treatment of Indigenous people. But, you know, and Adam Good says recognise and blah, blah, blah. You know, no, you know, true discussion about the incredible conversations going on in the um, Aboriginal community with, you know, like extraordinary young intellectuals. Like I believe you met her, Nayuka Gori. Yes, yeah. I mean, bright young firebrand, that one. I know she's been quite critical of things like constitutional. Oh, yeah, yeah, really, really critical. And, you know, she's clearly a scholar of history. She's, She's really great. And so, okay, so here we have a group of people that we know actually... whose lives end in suicide like we we know that it's not speculation and who's having that conversation about the referendum the upcoming referendum and the potential harm that it may do to the aboriginal community um i mean i can't remember that that view ever being expressed yeah and it's i mean i'm sorry it's much more acceptable to be a, a white homosexual than it is to be a black person especially an indigenous black person in australia it's 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 way more acceptable um you know if the unlikely happened and an an aboriginal uh, or torres strait islander person became the head of goldman sachs you know which is highly unfucking likely right i mean what's gonna you know what, what's what's going to happen? I mean, something something very different. It's not going to be celebrated in quite the same way. Mm. But it speaks. I feel like that speaks to the kind of the strangeness of uh, queer identities and queer politics generally. In that, you know, that like we can have such a because respectability politics plays such a kind of big role in, in our communities, and you can have Ugh. people at the very sort of top end who can I don't know pass or or like really fit in with dominant ideologies. But, I mean, but you still see like a massive spectrum of advantage and, and, and yeah. like privilege and disadvantage within our communities that that makes it also to a to a lesser extent exists in in indigenous communities. Just talk about you yeah, know, yeah. Sort of yeah. from the range of Noel Pearsons to to people who are you know in um, rural communities. It, it, to, to me, that says something about identity politics and the chal- you know the challenges and the the issues of collecting people amongst an identity and expecting a collective politic. Mm. Um, and I think right at the start you talked about the sort of the removal of politics from identity politics in many ways, that there's sort of a removal of political, uh, you know, there's sort of this idea of uh, that, you know, we just have to, you know, do, do, do express ourselves individually and that is what yeah. expresses our, you know, who we Can are. And a lot of rights discourses, that removal of politics as well. And sort of, let's go into, like, I just want to go, in, I don't know, go into that a bit more about this sort of removal of politics and how... Sure, um, but, it occur- but again, we have to say that it occurs at every level. Absolutely, um, I mean, yeah. it's, um, it's, you know, at epidemic proportions within liberal feminism, for yeah, example. absolutely, yeah. I was just and using those as examples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like, you know, I was um, running a speech about the media's treatment of, of, of um, Trump and, and Clinton recently and sort of did a lot of reading, especially around your sort of like Amanda Merkitz and what have you, who said that, you know, the only reason that Hillary didn't get in was that she was a woman. Mm. Um, The flip side of that, of course, um, is that the only reason she should get in is that she's a woman. And I was reading a piece by Jane Caro recently that said, um, well, you know, I I might not agree with all of her policies. She didn't nominate which. I don't know whether it was campaigning to end the welfare state in the 1990s 
or um, campaigning for the incarceration of people of colour mm. in the 1990s. I don't know whether it was um, ruining the state of Libya, um, you know, whether it was her work with the prison complex or the military-industrial complex. She didn't nominate which thing it was that Hillary did that she didn't like, but nonetheless... It was essential for our future that Hillary Clinton became president. And, you know, that's as far as the critique goes, you know, that... that um, and so it's not a political critique. No, um, and it, and But it also becomes, you know, very much, um, you know, as much as people... Um, on the, you know, sort of the old centre-left, like like Jane, presumably, you know, and she's a yeah, good woman and everything, but as, as much as they might be sort of like grappling and really enacting to say the right initials, LGBTIQ, oh, you've added another initial this week, A, okay, I'll <laughs> stick with that. And as much as they might be trying to be inclusive in all of those ways, what she doesn't acknowledge in that is the fact of class or of capital, which, again, you know, afflicts every person on the planet, blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, how can you, how can you not look at any movement? And this is the only problem I have with identity politics. It, it doesn't think about class and it doesn't think about capital. Mm. And, it's, and so um, I think it was like I don't agree with all of his politics, but he's a good speaker and occasionally a very good writer. You know, Yanis Varoufakis, the former finance minister of Greece, yes. um, said that simple truth that now not many people on the so-called left agree with you can't to have a conversation about politics without the economy is toxic and and vice versa and to have a politics without politics is equally toxic so it's not politics it's sort of like forcing people to you know accept you i have a um a friend called um amal awad who just wrote uh, a book really good book actually great book um on on arab women um i think she was um yeah, it was. It's called Beyond the Veil Cliche, and so it's specifically about Arab women, not Muslim women, which was a good strategy. And you know, she's written really, really um, great book. And I remember the Essential poll um, had come out um, about a year ago, and Amal just you know had a little bit of a rage on 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 SBS, which is. So the essential poll said that 55% of Australians just don't like Muslims. Yeah, I remember and, that one. Yeah, and my friend Amal's response was, oh, who cares? You know, it's like, do I care if Mrs. Kafoops from, you know, Balkham Hills likes me or not? No, frankly, I don't. I mean, there's always going to be cultural division. I don't think that there will ever be a time of u- u- utopia. There will always be people who disapprove yes, of others. Kind of, it's a of difference. Yeah, and when it comes to gender and sexuality, I mean, I think that it's possible. It's not probable, but I think that it's a possibility that, you know, if we transformed the world, we could probably get rid of the ill of racism for good. Um, it would require some extraordinary transformation. And by the way, nothing of it has to do with pamphlets and telling people they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, it you know it it requires an absolute reorganization of the way we order our politics and economy but getting rid of um a prejudice or whatever you want to call it like revulsion for non-normative gender or non-normative sexuality that's a different matter it goes deeper you know it's not just that 
sexuality is a construction and it's not just that gender is a construction. Don't look at me like that. I'm not saying that it's biologically essential. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not I'm not saying that at all, but it's something that begins in infancy. And so the social so it's you know, it happens at the psychoanalytic level. It doesn't just happen at the social level. And, you know, when that bloke punches you because what he actually wants to do is kiss you, that might happen for a long time, even yeah, into yeah. a utopian future. Sure. And like and forcing everyone into years and years of therapy is less an option. Yeah. I mean, we don't have therapy for anything. Sure. Anyway, you know, who you can afford therapy? We don't have therapy, therapy for the most basic mental health issues. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, <laughs> let alone for your repressed you know, sexuality. You've, you've got delusional disorder and you're, you think that the Martians are stealing your laundry. You try to get a bed in a hospital, you just can't. Mm. And um, so, you know, so there's this idea about re educating people. And if only they see, you know, our 18th century Enlightenment truth, they'll agree. Well, no, there might actually be. Um, reasons that precede the social that might come from infancy that you have a particular idea of man woman or not man woman or you have a particular idea of uh, same-sex acts or whatever um this is something that's a much more complex and doesn't only belong to the social realm that belongs very much to the personal realm I mean, do you think that makes respectability politics a more sort of dangerous prospect within queer communities than potentially in other communities if it's like denying something that is more fundamental or trying to distance ourselves from something that is more fundamental. No, the interesting thing for me um, is like when the actual sex comes up, um, that's when people lose their shit. Okay, loathe the guy, but Yanapoulos, right? We all remember why Yanapoulos finally lost his respectability. Yes, (laughs) indeed. Because, and okay, yeah, so he was talking about like sucking the cock of a priest when he was 13. Shocking. I understand. But, but, you know, like, everybody's on Milo. Like, mm-hmm. so many reasons to hate Milo. Like, so many other reasons. The, that's the one, one that said that I was 13 and I enjoyed sucking the cocks of older men, that was not the reason to, like, absent him. There were many, many other reasons. Yes. But that was the reason that he became dangerous. Do you think and, that, that's a, that that's a kind of, like, something that should point us towards like being more I mean I don't even know if this has like this is just an end in and of itself or whether it's it's a means to something else but like just being more in people's face about our sex lives about um not necessarily our specific sex lives but the way the fact that like being queer means you usually have sex differently or you know that that there are sexual differences here so, so you're asking Ben, you know, should we be more... For me? Well, is there a political no. value? Is there political I don't value know. Even, I guess? Marcusa would say so, but let me just... Uh, I was just reading something in my favourite newspaper, The Guardian, and, I mean, you know, to, to quote the old, you know, Gore Vidal, um, there are no heterosexual or homosexual people, there are just heterosexual or homosexual acts. Like, to say, I'm gay and I do this, well, that's not for me like a queer politics, a queer theory way of approaching it. And I was reading this thing. um, I just want to read out, I mean, you know, very well-intentioned piece about how understanding this author is and how understanding her children are um, about the gays. It's written by, um, I think, a couple of months ago in The Guardian by Catherine, the Sydney academic Catherine Lumbee, and it's about safe schools, right? Okay, safe schools, not a terrible idea so 
she talks about Tony Abbott and she says Abbott's issue is um, that Safe Schools opens young people up to discussions about gender and sexuality fluidity, which according to the Abbots and Bernardis of the world might teach them to be gay. And then she goes on to say, fun fact, approximately 0% of LGBTI people learned their identity from a textbook. They were born that way. Mm -hmm. No lessons required. Now, this is weird (laughs) because I think Catherine is about my age so she would have gone, and I know she went to the same university as I did, Sydney. We had, you know, Anna Marie Jagos there. Mm-hmm. It was like a Political really big... lesbianism at the time, you know. But it was a very big queer theory yeah, yeah. Um, uh, um, surge there. I don't know how she avoided it, but she must have. Must have. So LGBTI people learned their identity from a textbook. She's, that's her conten- contention that they didn't, that their identities were naturally acquired. Mm-hmm. No, no. Okay, so, like, if you want to be all eugenicist about it, you can say that we're born with particular sexual urges. I suspect that that may not be the case, but let's just pretend that at some point in the future we will find differences between the male and female brain and the gay and the straight brain, etc., etc. For me, it doesn't really matter whether that will be shown, but to say that you acquire identity naturally, this... From a cultural studies scholar, what the fuck? Yeah, like seems hard to take. (laughs) (laughs) How can she say that? She's an academic. She lived through cultural studies. Like people don't learn their identities. Yes, they absolutely do. Again, it sort of goes back to what we've been. I mean, a lot of the theme of this conversation of that sort of individualization of of. Of identities, which is natural, yeah. of course. A lack of understanding about the political nature of identities and, and the cultural nature of identities yeah. and the social nature of identities, that we live in society and in politics and that that has an impact on those sorts yeah. of things. But it just, I mean, I don't know how much political action is possible in this era um, between queers, you know? I mean, for me, sure. like, it's sort of like the older I get, the more practically minded I get, I suppose. And um, it's... Uh, I no longer believe in me. I mean, I worked in sort of fairly mainstream media for a long time and I'm pretty confident I never changed a single person with my inspirational talk about strong women. Um, Of course, you know, there's a lot of people that believe that not to be the case and they think that these sort of short sugar rushes that essentially come from, you know, popular liberal feminists are going to transform the lives of women. I, I don't think that that happens. Um, you know, you get a frisson, you know, but it, it, what really changes is interaction with others. And um, I think that the interaction with others, you know, has to be as comrades uh, and not as within, you know, like a, a true left wing context. And that is the true viable context that is emerging. We read so much in the press at the moment about the alt-right and of course they've done terrible things but what we don't read about is you know the strong and growing like ultra-left hard-left historical materialist movements happening all over Europe and in America and you you know like Chapo Trap House you know that podcast it's massive now yeah absolutely um but you know I mean Podemos in Sumi you know Saritza okay sure they've been disappointing and so's the SNP Corbyn this is the counter narrative to these conservative times and it's 
you know, young leftist people, about which I write in my new book, Total Propaganda, Basic Marxist Brainwashing for the Angry and the Young. Sorry. Um, but this <laughs> no, is this is the true counter-movement, and it is much bigger. I mean, you get, what, like half a million people, mostly under 30, joining UK Labour for Jeremy Corbyn, making it the biggest political party in Europe, the youngest political party in Europe, and yet we're fixated on the right as the source of all trouble with no regard for the fact that, um, and it's quite diverse, you know, culturally, ethnically diverse membership as well, without looking at what is, is actually happening. I mean, Sanders is not perfect. Again, his audiences were really diverse. So I think it's more of a case of... Um, uh, comrades understanding, you know, what problems are specific to your identity group and how can we stand shoulder to shoulder and fight together for, um, you know, needs that, that suit us all. But, I, I mean, I've given up on queers. I mean, they're just so fucking boring. I mean, it sounds like you were saying that at best we could have a, like, you know, your understanding of your own your, your own experience through being queer could be a pathway into a broader kind of left politics for a lot of people. Yeah, but when does that happen? Like you two guys? Sure. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure we're not the only ones. Hopefully. Yeah, I don't know. Um, no. Look, increasingly, they, like one of my favourite um, writers is you know Yasmin Nair. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, from She's against, against equality. Against yeah. equality. Mm. Against equality really? are amazing, and yes, she yeah. is such an extraordinary writer as well. Um, I'm jealous of everything that woman writes. (laughs) Um, And certainly, you know, her experience as being, you know, um, like a Desi woman and a a queer woman um, living in a Western country, of course, all all those things inform. But, you know, and, yeah, the stuff that, I mean, you know, I just highly recommend that you, if you're so inclined and if you're not going to troll, join the Against Equality um, conversation group on Facebook or, or definitely look at their resources online. And um, their major um, areas of activism, and remember, marriage equality has happened in a very different way in the yeah, US yes, yes. Um, to, to what it has here. Like, um, you kind of have to be married in the US to yeah, have certain legal rights, yeah. and that's not the case in Australia, yes. either for same or opposite sex couples. Um, and in a way, it's actually forcing people to get married. So, you know, if you want insurance, you yeah. have to get married, etc., etc., etc. Um, incarceration is um, a really big deal for against equality. Um, and, it, you know, it's a real weird thing I've seen happen. Like, there's people aware that, um, you know, that there needs to be reform, especially where trans people are concerned, and trans people are much more likely to be incarcerated yes. than, than many other, you know, than the general population. And so what happens is, you know, a lot of, like, good people go and, talk to corrective officers who are on low wages in what are often profit-making companies and tell them don't be mean to trans people rather than kind of like going back to the root and asking why are you know, trans people criminalised? Like, you know, and why are Aboriginal people criminalised? Like, Is it just because they're bad people? No, I don't think so. You know, it's the economic conditions of their lives. So it's sort of like, you know waiting for the dead bodies and kind of like giving them a good funeral rather than you, you actually ensuring that, that but this is an awful analogy, but actually ensuring that, you know, people have good lives from the outset. So I see this more as a, a pan-leftist movement. I understand that, you know, traditionally 
Um, there's been really homophobic people on the material left and really sexist people and really racist people. So here's my moment of optimism. The one great thing that uh, identity politics has given us is 40 years on the left of thinking about how we might step on somebody's toes with inconsiderate language. Mm. Um, None of that shit is bad. I mean, in many ways, these are the true problems. But so we've got that. Now we also have um, a group of young people who are very aware of all of these things, but are also now embracing historical materialism. That is the way in which um, the mode of production, which ours is capital, transforms people's lives. So what we have are these kids who are becoming... Uh, who are very identity politics aware and are very Marxist. Plus, the world is in a state of economic shit. I would say that the conditions for meaningful revolution amongst all people are pretty good at the moment. I mean, yeah, I will thank identity politics for the last 40 years, whether it was the result of neoliberalism or not, Um, for actually educating us all to the point where we don't say dumb shit and we don't diminish people by using the wrong word and what have you. So this, to me, is like a perfect concatenation for real amazing activism. I don't hate black people and also I hate capitalism. What more could a girl ask, you know? I mean, this is, for me, a time where not people of my age range but more people of your age range and, and younger might actually be able to find like a, a truer and richer solidarity. That sounds like a perfect place to stop. Um, just so all of our listeners know, um, Helen is speaking at the Festival of Questions on Sunday the 15th of October. She also um, has a marvellous new book out. Yes, and uh, she has a marvellous new book out called... Total Propaganda. Um, and so you should all check that out. Um, talking about Marxism, it's kind of an introduction to Marxism is it, for young people. It is. Yeah, so it uh, sounds like a really great, uh, if you want to sort of go more into Marxism and how young people can be, you know, energised by Marxism, I think that sounds like an you can, excellent... You can put this episode into practice. Yeah, put this episode into practice. Well, yeah. um, but otherwise, like, Helen, thank you so much for, for coming. Yeah, thank you. Um, when oh. We managed to be in Melbourne at the same time, and it was been a great chat. Yes, lovely. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you all for listening. Um, we will be back in a couple of weeks with uh, another episode. Uh, in the meantime, you can check out um, our podcast at queers.podomatic.com and go and uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Um, and as always, please leave a review and rating as that helps other people find us. Even better, you should tell friends. If you think you have uh, any friends that would be interested in listening to the podcast, tell them to listen to it. That's uh, Word of Mouth is a really great way we get new listeners. You can also email us if you have any questions or comments or feedback. We're at queerspodcast at gmail.com. And we're now on Facebook and Twitter. Yay, at Queers Podcast. So go and check out our Facebook and Twitter feeds. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Simon Copland and at, on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. And Ben is on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. Buy my book. Buy Helen's book. One more time. One more time the name. Total Propaganda. Go buy it. Check it out. Uh, Thanks as always for listening and we will see you next time. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, 
a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.